Hi, this is Marlene, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. Whether you're watching a video or listening to a podcast, please like and subscribe to us so that you can get notification of when a new show is released. Links to videos or MP3 files can be found on MiamiGhostChronicles.com. Go to MarlenePardo.com for information on new book releases. I narrate several podcast series that can be found on major podcast platforms and can also be listened to via Alexa, Sonos, and other home systems. Look for Supernatural Storytime for scary storytelling, Nightshade Diary for classic horror and adventure stories, Stories of the Supernatural for interviews with different guests on the show. If you want to get noteworthy news about the paranormal world, true crime, conspiracy stories, and anything that is just plain weird, you can visit Strange Than Fiction Stories tab at MiamiGhostChronicles.com or find us on Blogspot. I want to thank you for being part of my audience, and I think you are all wonderful. Hi everybody, this is Marlene with Stories of the Supernatural, and this is going to be the first in a series called Mysteries of Old Florida. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, here we go with the first story. It started back in 1921, June 3rd to be exact. Marriage license was issued for Adam W. Oberlin, age 62, and Ida Marie Keogh, age 52. This seemed to be the beginning of good things for Adam Oberlin. Then the next month, on July 16th, he accepted the position of Deputy United States Marshal in charge of the Miami District. He came to Miami only two and a half years before, and he just lost an election for county sheriff. In Canton, Ohio, he was known as the man who cleaned up Canton when he served as sheriff for two terms in 1909 and 1913. He had a reputation for fearlessness. He worked with an anti-vice squad to wipe out gambling and liquor violations. He closed down saloons, including the famous gambling joint known as Myers Lake. He stopped Sunday racetrack betting and automobile racing. He eliminated the red light district, which was considered a menace. Afterwards, he was elected a member of the House and then served a term in the state Senate, which ended January 1918. Then he came to Miami and worked in real estate. Many of the local Miami citizens insisted on his appointment in an effort to enforce prohibition. He took his oath of office on August 1, 1921. He replaced John A. Moritz. Within a few days, he had to return two truckloads of liquor made up of 71 cases of scotch, Irish gin, and Bacardi rum to D.R. Armstrong at his Point View home on Southwest 2nd Street, which had been confiscated several months before. This was a second time in two weeks that federal prohibition agents had to return liquor to Armstrong per an order from Judge Ryden M. Call. Apparently something was up when two days later it was ordered that any seizures of liquor made by federal agents in Miami should be stored in the federal building under the supervision of Adam Oberlin instead of the Withers warehouse where they were normally held. By August 18th, Oberlin was making high-profile arrests. John Crossland, president and general manager of the J.G. Grossland Company, was arrested on the charge of conspiracy to defraud the government and violation of the National Prohibition Act. It was believed to be an effort 
to end one of the largest single liquor activities being conducted in the United States, and that Crossland was one of the ringleaders. Described as an Atlantic City millionaire, Crossland denied any connection to the recent seizure of a, quote, booze-laden schooner from Atlantic City on August 2nd, which was under British registry. Inside were 1,400 cases of liquor. Strangely enough, a co-conspirator was a Mr. H. Holden, who operated a beauty parlor in Miami. In the following days, warrants were served on smaller bootleggers working off the Florida coast. In the beginning of September, Overland, he was laid low not by criminals, but by dengue fever. The raids against the bootleggers didn't stop, though. A 50-gallon moonshine still was destroyed in a wooded area near DeBerry Sawmill, eight miles west of Larkin. A copper outfit with fire still burning under the boiler was discovered with two barrels of mash nearby, about 150 gallons of beer, and a can of potash. No arrests were made since whoever was working it had fled. In November, James A. Allison, a wealthy winter resident of Miami Beach and president of the Miami Aquarium Corporation, was arrested by Deputy U.S. Marshal Adam Oberlin on a charge of violation of the National Prohibition Act. He was placed under a $300 bond. Mr. Allison had been indicted in May by a grand jury for alleged ownership of 200 cases of intoxicating liquors seized at an apartment adjoining the Miami Aquarium, which Mr. Allison occupied personally. By the end of November 1921, Adam Oberlin had not been seen for a week. Strangely, the proprietor of Melrose Dairy, Mr. Joaquin Fritz, presented notes amounting to approximately $10,000 that he claimed Oberlin owed him for land deals. Oberlin's automobile had been found a few days earlier on the Tamiami Trail, 12 miles west of Miami. According to statements made by Mr. Fritz, Mr. Oberlin had paid in cash for the deals in which they were associated. These were real estate deals. He had been pressing Oberlin for some time for payment of $500 he had given him for the purchase of his vehicle. These stories later turned out not to be accurate, for in truth, Oberlin was in the black from his real estate deals. Oberlin was last seen leaving his home a week before with the intention of getting a shave and then visiting his attorney, E.B. Kurtz. He never made it to the barber shop. A few days later, authorities dragged a canal on the Tamiami Trail at a point opposite of where the auto was found. A fisherman who reported finding the car said at that time that the car was driven to the point where it was found by a man who got out of the machine and walked due west into the Everglades. After he made a statement to the local sheriff, the federal authorities were trying to find him to verify what he had seen. He was never located. W.J. Keogh, Oberlin's stepson, said he doubted this was a case of suicide and there were no warrants pending that would have taken his stepfather out on Tamiami Trail. A story was told that Mr. Oberlin disappeared from his former home in Canton, Ohio during the World War, following the death of his first wife in 1916. He was, afterwards, found working as a carpenter in a shipyard at Norfolk, Virginia, under an assumed name. While the search was being conducted for Oberlin, it appears that Crossland was making plans to leave for Bimini aboard one of his fishing vessels. Dr. Holden and the crew of the Henry L. Marshall were apprehended and arraigned in court in Trenton, New Jersey. 
Mr. Allison had a summer home in Indianapolis and would come down to Miami on his yacht Seahorse. It appeared that all of these boss bootleggers were owners of large yachts. On November 25th, the sheriff's forces gave up the search for Oberlin in the belief that he had suffered a lapse of memory and was still alive. W.J. Keogh, his son, was sworn in as acting deputy marshal. On December 3rd, an anonymous source offered a $5,000 reward for any information in regard to the death of Adam W. Oberlin, and it specified if murdered. The ad printed in the local newspapers and specified, we will guarantee protection to any information and his name will not be used in any way. Perhaps all the rumors that Oberlin had committed suicide or had a mental lapse and headed back to Ohio where his five children live seemed more improbable as the days passed. Days later, the federal authorities were perplexed over the identity of who made the offer for the $5,000 reward. The ad had been signed only with the initials of A.W.O., and the address given was 232 Republic Building. It seemed that the existence of the offer only came to their attention after a reporter for the Metropolis called the Department of Justice. The address specified belonged to the office of H. Paul Prague, who had a for-rent post office lockbox at the Republic Building. He told police that the week before, a man whose name he was not at liberty to give out owing to the privacy with which he operated his service, secured a box and the mail and that it should be handled under the initials of A.W.O. Deputy Keogh denied his mother had made any such offer and in fact, she had been hospitalized due to the grief of her husband's disappearance when she suffered a nervous breakdown. The ad for the reward was reprinted on December 5, 1921. On December 8th, L.W. Shaw, a resident of Georgia, filed suit for $10,000 in damages against Deputy Oberlin and his former real estate partner, Joaquin Fritz. On December 28th, 20 days later, Indian guides and Everglade hunters searching for Oberlin found his body three miles from where he left his automobile. Between the legs of the decayed corpse, which was only a skeleton, a revolver was found which Oberlin carried as a government official. His hat, coat, and other belongings were tied up in a handkerchief hanging on the branches of a nearby bush. He had a number of letters and telegrams addressed to him in his coat pocket, but there was no suicide note. Buzzards and wild animals had been at the body. Authorities said that Oberlin had been careful to conceal his tracks, and if not for the expertise of the trackers in the party, he would not have been discovered. The body was found on a small island, a clump of bushes rising above the level of the marshes. One had to traverse a ridge of myrtle bushes over a mile in length. The site was about 18 miles from Miami. It was believed the worries over financial matters caused him to commit suicide. This was despite the claims of his family that he appeared always in good spirits. However, this theory was turned on its head when no bullet hole could be found in the skull though two cartridges had been discharged. A triangular-shaped fracture at the top of the skull, which was at least two and a half to three inches in width, was found. Some of the members of the coroner's jury thought it had been made by some blunt instrument. The skull hung by a thread of dried flesh to the body, which was lying on its back, sprawled out, 
with the trousers and shirts in shreds from exposure to the elements. The guides who found the body testified that only one of the tracks could be found to where the corpse was discovered. It was on the strength of their statement that the theory was upheld that Oberlin took his own life. Supposedly, the trail leading to the body was found after someone in the search party shot at a wildcat and chased after it when they crossed over the faint trail left by Oberlin over a month before. Once they found the hammock where the trail led, the Indians refused to enter owing to a certain superstitions concerning dead bodies. The autopsy found that Oberlin had shot himself through the mouth or eye and the bullet fractured his skull, where it was later found deeply embedded in the skull. His stepson reiterated that he never showed any indication that he was suicidal and that his finances were not in a tangled condition. He was quoted as saying his assets were greater than his liabilities and he could easily obtain loans necessary to conduct his business. Authorities claim the land was flooded up to a short time ago, which was the reason the searchers had not found the trail before as they searched that section several weeks before. The exhaustion of county funds available for the search was stopped until the return of Leon Howe, special agent of the Department of Justice who immediately renewed the search. On December 31st, the coroner's jury decided that his death by a gunshot wound was self-inflicted. A year later, despite the decision of the coroner's jury, there were persistent rumors that Oberlin had been murdered by men engaged in, quote, illicit traffic in liquor and that he had been lured to the spot where his body was found, end quote. Mrs. Oberlin refused to believe her husband was a suicide, and after the body was sent to his former home in Ohio, she had it examined by physicians who were reported to have declared that it indicated he had been struck on the head by a blunt instrument. Two years to the month after Oberlin's body was discovered, John G. Crossland was convicted in Trenton, New Jersey, on a charge of conspiracy to violate the Federal Prohibition Act. Eventually, he was sentenced to only two years in prison and a $10,000 fine. Ida Oberlin died in 1932. Now, this begs the question, did Adam Oberlin commit suicide just months after marrying and securing a job as a U.S. Marshal? Or did he cross powerful men engaged in bootlegging who were aware of his reputation in Ohio and that he intended to do the job he had been hired to do. Well, whoever could have answers to those questions took them to the grave. The second mystery takes us back all the way to 1891. This is when the Packwood murders occurred. It was an extremely brutal affair in which two women and two children were killed. It attracted national attention. Detectives and news writers from many cities came to New Smyrna to cover the case. It was tried several times in several courts. Three men were convicted, sentenced, and later released. The Supreme Court proceedings on the case are one of the longest recorded in Florida. The murders occurred on December 11, 1891 and the final decision was not given until 1896. It started out in December 1891 when Francis J. Packward, with his sister-in-law, Miss Adelaide Bruce, and his four-year-old son, Frank, lived on the Indian River, about halfway between the towns of New Smyrna and Oak Hill. 
Mr. Packwood's place was somewhat isolated, being immediately on the river and about a mile from the public road. His house was built on a large shell mound overlooking the river. On Thursday, Mr. Packwood left his place to visit Orange County, and, as was his custom on remaining from home overnight, he induced a Mrs. Hatch, living a few miles distant, to stay with his family until his return. On the 12th day of December, 1891, during his absence, the dead bodies of Miss Bruce, the little boy, Mrs. Hatch, and her son, Benny, who was 11 years old, who had accompanied her to the Packwood place, were found murdered in the house. The crime was reported by Irving Jenkins, a local handyman who was in the habit of helping out at the Packwoods and doing errands for them. He claimed he went by as usual, found the gate open, then saw an open window and could hear no one about, so he went in without investigating further to tell the neighbors a mile away. In the room of the broken window was found Miss Bruce on the bed. In extreme disarray, the side of her face crushed with the barrel of a gun belonging in the house, shot and her head almost cut off. On the floor at the foot of her bed lay the body of little Frankie Packwood, shot and his throat also cut. In an adjoining room, the body of Mrs. Hatch was on the couch, shot, the body of Benny beside her with his throat cut, and from knife slashes in the pillow and the must-up couch, it looked as if he had put up a struggle before he was killed. There was also marks of a dog's teeth in his feet. The coroner's verdict was brought in Monday, December 28th, as death by parties unknown. But on March 6, 1893, the case was brought before the grand jury in Deland. On the 9th, Marion Clinton confessed. He said he had gone to bed when Will McRae and Irving Jenkins, yes, this is the Irving Jenkins who had made the report to the neighbors, had come for him. He got up, dressed, and went to the Packwood place with them for wine, but he did not go to the house, staying in the boat until the others came back. Yet, the three were met walking toward the Packwood place and explained that they had walked toward Hawks Park a ways to see if they could meet Packwood, but had turned back. The story goes that McRae called Miss Bruce to the wine house and attempted assault, but Miss Bruce fought him off and ran to the house, to Mrs. Hatch. The McRae told Jenkins what he had done, and Jenkins said they would have to kill them all or they would surely get in trouble. So they broke the window and went in. Miss Bruce had gotten a shotgun, but Jenkins took it from her and hit her with it. She and Frankie Packwood were both shot with a 32 center fire Smith & Wesson. This revolver had been borrowed by Marion Clinton from a Mr. Crouch and was returned the morning the bodies were discovered and their throats cut. Mrs. Hatch had a 32 rim fire revolver, which she shot once. Then she was shot down, after which they presumably dispatched Benny. The case was adjourned until November 14, 1893. Then after three days was transferred to Tavares, where it was taken up again on April 5, 1894. On April 22, the jury brought in a verdict of murder in the first degree with recommendation to the mercy of the court in the case of Clinton, and the accused were sentenced. Jenkins and McRae to be hung and Clinton to confinement in the penitentiary for life. Then St. Clair Abrams, who had convicted the three, took the case from McRae, 
Jenkins, and Clinton, and at the January 1895 term of the Supreme Court in Tavares, Asporn was awarded a new trial on the grounds that the jurors on the case were not drawn strictly according to the Act of 1893 and that the statement of the prisoners, although taken down by the state's attorneys, had not been read to or signed by the prisoners, so were not admissible as evidence. And the last trial that same year acquitted all three men. One of the local newspapers wrote the following article dated March of 1893. It was titled A Confession of One Man. And it read, One year ago last December, the entire South was shocked to learn that two women and two children had been butchered at Hewitt's, a small village in Volusia County. Frank J. Packwood, who came from one of the best families in Louisiana, had married a Miss Bruce of New York and lived at Hewitt's with his sister-in-law and his five-year-old son, Frank, his wife having died. He was called away on business and invited Mrs. Hatch, a neighbor originally from Lynn, Massachusetts, to keep his family company. Mrs. Hatch brought her son along. In the article, he say he's eight years old instead of 11. The first intimation that the two women and children had been murdered in the night came from a handyman named Irving Jenkins, who said something was wrong over at the Packwood place and asked for volunteers to accompany him that the matter might be investigated. Miss Bruce, Mrs. Hatch, and the two children, he said, were dead. The bodies of the women were riddled with bullets and the throats of all but Mrs. Hatch were cut. Mrs. Bruce's head was battered in, apparently with a stock of a gun. Jewelry, silverware, and other articles of value and a sum of money were undisturbed, showing that the object of the murders was not plunder. It was soon proved that one of the women had been assaulted, and it was apparent that the crime was the work of men who were known to the theory that the dead tell no tales. From the first, there was the strangest kind of suspicion against Marion Clinton, Will McRae, and Jenkins, the one who had called for volunteers to go to the Packwood house, but no conclusive evidence could be obtained. Recently, St. Clair Abrams, a lawyer of Lake County, took up the case, assisted by District Attorney Beggs. None of the men under suspicion had ever been arrested, and the whole countryside was summoned to appear before the grand jury at DeLand. Among others summoned was Clinton. Strong pressure was brought to bear upon him, and Wednesday evening he confessed that McRae and Jenkins had murdered the people while he kept watch. No sooner had the news of Clinton's confession spread than the residents of Volusia County began gathering. Sheriff Lawrence was quick to act, however, and put his men in Jyoti land where they are now. Then it goes on to say that the most amusing incident of this trial was a delegation of townsmen, 83 in number, who on April 28, 1894, a few days after the three prisoners were sentenced, went to give the Clinton family 30 days notice to leave the county. They were met at the door by Mrs. Clinton, mother of Marion, who held a double-barreled shotgun. She said the one word, get, they got, and the Clinton family still lives in New Smyrna, and this was written in 1936. But as you know, all these stories have a backstory, and such is the case. But let's start off with uh, that last little piece about Ma Clinton uh, bringing out her shotgun. Well, it turned out her 
Real name was Elizabeth Bird Clinton. She died in 1942 at the age of 103 or 104. However, this humorous story, like I said, had a backstory. Turns out that during those weeks of the trial, the Clinton family began threatening revenge on the community, which is why the residents of New Smyrna, Oak Hill, and Hawks Park notified the Clintons they had to leave in 30 days. Later on, you're going to hear some stories that describe other incidents in which the Clintons did terrorize the vicinity they lived in. But why don't we go back to the beginning? Right after the murders, one of the persons that was considered a suspect was a young physician that lived in New Smyrna. It appeared that he had fallen in love with Adelaide Bruce, had proposed marriage to her, but she turned him down. Which, by the way, was kind of unusual because she was considered to be a spinster. That was the word used in those days for a woman in her 30s who had not been married. But later on, we find out that there was a rumor going round that she had gotten a proposal of marriage from her brother-in-law. Yes, from Frank Packwood. Remember, she had been taking care of her nephew, his son, since the child's birth because her sister, Marie, had died shortly after giving birth. By the way, uh, Marie and Frances Packwood were married on December 22nd, 1885. Now, as we go and we look at this uh, case as it unfolds, uh, this is a very sparsely populated area. In those days, everybody knew everybody else. The location of the cabin was very isolated. The closest neighbor was a mile away. So it's strange to think that three murderers, three men who committed such an atrocious crime could get away based on a technicality. In the end, when they were sentenced, two of them were supposed to be hung and Clinton was to serve a life sentence. Now, within two weeks of the murder, Captain W.C. Cooper, a Pinkerton man, was working on the case. This is when they arrested Irving Jenkins, hoping he would give information on who else was with him. And by then, the county officers were offering a $1,000 reward, which was quite a lot of money in those days, for the arrest and conviction of those guilty of the crime. Again, this family lived in a small cottage with another building that housed the kitchen. In other words, this was not a wealthy family, even though they were considered a family that has settled the area. But as far as it being a large house with a lot of material goods, which one could have thought would have been an incentive for the men to enter the house, that was not the case. Uh, whatever their motive, whether robbery or rape, they knew witnesses could not be left alive to identify them to the police because, again, everybody knew everybody else. Now, after they looked at the doctor in New Smyrna, he was briefly considered, all right, uh, fast forward, their strong suspicion, not only that Jenkins was involved, but also Marion Clinton and the other man, last name of McRae. Then in March of 1892, the bodies are exhumed and the bullets extracted from the remains. The Volusia County Grand Jury adjourned after three weeks in session. They had interviewed 25 witnesses. Jenkins was in custody since December. However, at that point, he was discharged for lack of evidence because even though the other two men were suspected of it, at that point, 
Jenkins had not officially pointed the finger at them. Then, six months later in October of 1892, Jenkins is arrested for selling liquor without a license. It's believed that the detectives feared that eventually he would be put out of the way by the other murderers. Another way, in other words, the detectives they were they were following Jenkins around, and what they feared was that eventually that he they would kill him, so that in case he would be pressed too hard and he would actually end up confessing and giving the names of the others involved. Now, finally, uh, slowly working in the background, uh, the grand jury was held in the land. Okay. And Marion Clinton appeared before them. And it's at that point that he confesses that William McRae and Irving Jenkins had murdered the people while he kept watch, which is why later on, instead of asking for the death sentence for him, a jury only asks for, for clemency and why he got life in prison. By March of 1893, newspapers are alleging that there was strong suspicion against Marion Clinton, which by the way, his full name is Francis Marion Clinton. He happened to live only two miles from the murder scene. He was 20 years old and Will McRae worked in Titusville for a man named W.C. Day, who was considered the Tin Man. It was at this time that an attorney by the name of St. Clair Abrams, he was a criminal attorney from Lake County, takes up the case, assisted by District Attorney Beggs. Remember, this is the same attorney that turns around the fence and gets these guys off when it goes to the Florida Supreme Court. Finally, all three men are arrested in March of 1893. There were several delays due to requests for a change of venue and other filings. Finally, the case went to trial in April of 1894. Now, a witness testified that William McRae, the day after the murder, had scratches on his neck and that a shirt found at his home was bloody. However, it could not be proved it was human blood. During the trial, it came out both women were raped and Mrs. Hatch was pregnant. The theory of the state was that the men had broken in for the purpose of attacking the women, not robbery, and had killed them and the children to silence any witnesses. Now, the newspapers commented that the state's case against the defendants was rather weak and circumstantial. Another witness placed the three men close to the location of the murder, but not actually there. Another rumor was that two witnesses for the prosecution, a man named John B. Verona and a woman, Mrs. Poppleton, who the state depended on to clinch the case could not be found, and it was suspected they were paid to leave the state. The jury deliberated one hour and returned a verdict of guilty with mercy for Marion Clinton. It appeared that he and William McRae both came from prominent and respected families in the area. Then in March of 1895, Chief Justice Mabry with the Florida Supreme Court reversed the verdict based on a case of writ of error from Lake County Circuit Court and the new trial was ordered. Now for this trial, 56 witnesses were summoned and it took three weeks after which the jury found the accused not guilty. A local newspaper, the Indian River Advocate, wrote, With the acquittal of the accused, there is little hope of ever discovering who murdered Miss Bruce, Mrs. Hatch, Frankie Pack, and Benny Hatch on the night of December 12, 1891. The murders will take their place in the list of unsolved criminal mysteries. Now, when you review this story, 
especially the news stories. After the initial articles, when the murder was first committed and before the actual culprits were named, the local Florida newspapers followed the progress of the investigation very closely. However, after the happenings of the arrests and the accusations, most of the articles disappeared from the state's papers. It was mostly detailed by newspapers in other states, which you would think would be totally the opposite. Could there have been any pressure exerted by the family of any of the accused, especially the Clinton family? Well, a few years later, 1903, a small story is run in the newspaper about Edward Clinton. This was Marion's father, who came to Volusia County from Suwannee County, driving across the country in an ox team. He fought for the Confederacy in the Civil War, and then he went into the cattle business and raised a big family. In 1903, he owned 600 to 700 head of cattle. Mr. Clinton, who was in his late 60s, was arrested after being charged with altering the mark on a yearling. His defense was the mark was altered by a dog. In other parts of the country, this was considered cattle rustling. He was placed under bond of $250 pending the next term of criminal court. Two years later, Another story details where Edward Clinton Sr., who was called an old man in newspapers, and his son Buck. Now, it's unknown if this was a nickname for either of his sons, Marion or Edward Jr. And the story details where they were both charged with arson. The allegations were that they set fire to the Goodrich house at Oak Hill. The pair had skipped town, and Sheriff Turner said he didn't know where to look for them. Governor Broward offered $200 reward for the apprehension and conviction of whoever set fire to the house. Eventually, father and son were caught and tried, believe it or not, four times for arson. In May of 1906, both men were found guilty and Edward was sentenced to two years and Buck to 10 years to be served in the state pen. According to the Dayton Daily News, it was interesting to note that the history of the case is quite interesting. It shows how long one can fight off conviction if one has money. The Clintons have been tried four times on this charge of arson, three times in Orange County and on change of venue, and once in Volusia County. They were convicted in Volusia County and twice convicted in Orange County. One of the trials in Orange County resulted in a mistrial. Three times has a case been carried to the Supreme Court, and twice the verdict of the lower court has been set aside by the Supreme Court. In 1910, Edward Clinton, over 70 years of age, applied for a pardon but was denied, even though they relented in 1911 because of his age and he had served most of the two-year sentence he was given. He died in 1922, and his son Marion died two days later. In 1970, the oak-shaded frame home on the land is owned by Seth Clinton, nephew of Francis Marion Clinton, and all the Clinton family is buried in a nearby Clinton Cemetery. Now, let's take a look at the land, the land that the murders occurred on. That uh, piece of land owned by Francis Packwood had quite a history. It sat on a 900-year-old oyster shell mound built by the local Indians. The mounds were once large enough to serve as a landmark. 
Then in 1804, a man by the name of George Murray, he was an engraver by trade, took advantage of the Spanish king's offer to give land to those who would come to live in Florida. The land had already once been vacated by settlers that were driven off because the Seminoles had attacked them. Murray went ahead and got the grant. He settled the colony there only to become the second group to be driven off by the Seminole Indians. Now, with persistence, his wife, Mrs. Murray, her daughter, Jane, and her husband, John D. Sheldon, they returned from Philadelphia to that area in 1835 to live on what was called at that time the Murray Grant. Now, there were several Seminole Wars. The second one supposedly ended in 1842. However, there was a raid near the mouth of the Indian River seven years later. So Sheldon, who was a scout for the army, decided that the place was unsafe. He got his family out of there and he rented the location to a Mr. Shive from Philadelphia. On December 23rd, 1856, the last Seminole raid in the area was made on the Shive home. Seminoles killed Shive, his wife, and their young son, and the baby. All the bodies were mutilated. Neighboring settlers thought that the Indians must have thought that Sheldon's defenseless family was there and were seeking revenge for his work as a scout in the army. Now the land lay quiet for 35 years until 1891 when it was bought by Francis Joseph Packwood and his new wife. Like the Clintons, the Packwood family had settled the area. And uh, back in 1954, there was a story supposedly that was retold that it seemed, in quotes, that a wealthy Mr. Packwood, unknown which first name in the Mr. Packwood, was shot through a window while peacefully reading beside a kerosene lamp. He made a perfect target for his assailant because of the lamp's glow. Now, no one knows for sure which Mr. Packwood that it was because apparently the Packwoods were originally from New York, had gone off to Louisiana, there were a respective family there, and then they came over to Florida. Now, the, the family was very prominent in early Orange County. There were three Packwood brothers. Uh, the oldest was Dr. Richard Thomas Packwood. He was the first to arrive. He moved to Orlando in 1871 where he opened the town's first boot and shoe store on Pine Street. Now, the other brother, George Horatio Packwood, followed his brother a year later and homesteaded land in the Maitland area. He built a house on Lake Sibelia and planted a large orange grove. In 1876, Richard and George Packwood were among those who plotted the town of Lake Maitland, as it was called back then. Both of them figured prominently in the early history of the area, and one of them uh, held office as an alderman after the town was incorporated. George Packwood also built a three-story building that served as the town hall and as an opera house. Then the youngest of the brothers, that was the unfortunate Francis Joseph Packwood, known as Frank Packwood. He bought land near Edgewater in Volusia County in 1876, and like other people that homesteaded, he grew citrus. Uh, nine years later, he also bought lots in downtown Orlando. 
Now, there are accounts that say both George and Richard Packwood got into disputes with men in separate incidents in the 1870s, which prompted the brothers to challenge their respective adversaries to duels. One day in 1874, it just so happens, there's a journalist in the area out of Cincinnati, and he witnesses uh, a fight between George Packwood and a drunkard named Jack Roney. All right. Now, the journalist, he describes where Packwood was, quote, a quiet, intelligent Louisianian of pleasant demeanor and high spirit. I should thank him a little likely to attract anyone's ill will as myself, end quote. But for some reason, Packwood was assaulted by the drunk guy named Roney, whom the newspaper man described as a burly rough. Now, Packwood was a small man of delicate frame, but he knew he could not defeat Roney with his fist, so he challenged him to a duel. Supposedly, Packwood said to the man, I can't fight you with my hands, but if you will walk behind the doctor's office, we will arrange it there. Lucky for Packwood, somebody warned him that Roney was carrying a double-barreled shotgun and was lying in wait to ambush him as he walked around the corner to their intended meeting place. The sheriff ended up arresting Roney on an assault charge. As he was being led to jail, Roney briefly broke free from the sheriff's grasp and slugged the man who had warned Packwood. In 1883, George Packwood had moved to Tampa where he owned a hardware store and built a second home. He also kept the other one in Maitland. George Packwood died in 1933. Four years after George Packwood was trying to challenge Roney to a duel, his brother, Dr. Richard T. Packwood, also became involved in a dispute that threatened to turn deadly when he challenged his adversary to a duel. This Packwood, he'd been working in the sugar and mercantile business in New Orleans before moving to Orange County. He ran a boot and shoe store in Orlando. The following story was recreated from a 1933 article that was written up about this feud. And it started out in 1878, and it involved Dr. Packwood, who was a trustee of the Maitland Private School. This is where his son attended. In June of that year, the three trustees were called upon to pass judgment on a student who had committed some infraction. The student was Packwood's own son. However, it wasn't specified which of his four sons, which at that time ranged in age from 7 to 15, or exactly what was the infraction that the boy was charged with. At the hearing, when it was wrapping up, Dr. Packwood turns to another member of the school board, General E.T. Sturdivant. He was a farmer, rancher, and grove owner who had moved from Alabama eight years before and asked for his vote on the charge against the boy. General Sturdivant hesitated and then answered guilty, according to the accounts told. Dr. Packwood's face darkened, and he turned to Mr. Swift, who was the third member of the board, and asks about his vote. Mr. Swift glances at his two colleagues. Packwood is scowling at him at this point, and the general is looking down at his hands. And he takes a deep breath and says, I'm of the same opinion as General Studevant. Well, of course, there is a conflict of interest considering that Dr. Packwood was on a board where his own son was being chastised or charged in some type of infraction. But let's face it, this was affecting his immediate family. 
and it's not surprising to think that there would be some type of arm twisting involved. Supposedly the story goes that Dr. Packwood stares at Swift and says to him, remember we do business together and I'm sure you will regret this decision of yours. Perhaps you would like to change it? Mr. Swift twists uncomfortably in his chair and starts to answer, but ends up shrugging his shoulders. Not guilty, he mutters. The arm twisting worked. Dr. Packard smiles and votes with Mr. Swift, and the motion is that the defendant be honorably acquitted. General Sturdivant springs to his feet, and he objects. This is an outrage, he cries out. Dr. Packward looks at him coolly and says, General, I will hold you responsible for this after the meeting. And the general promptly stomps out in a rage. Now, although his son had been vindicated officially, Packward's anger against the good general is simmering all this time. And he writes a letter to Sturdivant that says, I believe you had a sinister design in not acquitting him, as in his son, since you acknowledge there was no evidence to convict him, I pronounce your action unfriendly, unjust, dishonest, and unbecoming to a gentleman. My friend Mr. Smith will call on you and demand the satisfactions he knows is due me. Yes, he was challenging the general to a duel. So, soon enough, Packwood's associate visited Sturdivant's home and when Smith asks whether Studevant has received a letter, the general nods and says, Am I to consider this a challenge? Smith says yes, and Studevant reminded him that dueling was illegal in Florida. He then wrote a note in response to be given to Packwood. As Smith mounts his horse to leave, he tells Studevant, I certainly hope you can satisfy Dr. Packwood without compromising your honor. The general then loses his temper and orders the man off his property. The next day, General Sturdivant rides into Orlando and swears out a warrant for Packwood's arrest. Packwood ends up getting arrested, postponed to get out of jail, and has to wait trial on the charge that he had challenged the man to an illegal duel. The trial begins in November of 1878, and it attracts statewide interest. There's so many people packed inside the courtroom to witness what's going on that the overflow crowd had to watch from outside and they were sitting unpacking crates just to look through the windows. Now, a number of the witnesses, including Sturdivant, testified. But the key witness, the man who presumably could have confirmed Sturdivant's claim that he had been challenged to a duel, which was Mr. Smith, had fled the state and did not appear at the trial. Without a star witness, the state's case against Packwood crumbled. The jury acquitted him and he avoided what could have been a 20-year prison term. After this, Dr. Richard Packwood, druggist and entrepreneur, fades into obscurity. By 1880, he's widowed. His wife, Sarah Hinckley Packwood, has died. And in the 1880 census, part of his household is Madeline Taylor, listed as housekeeper and sister-in-law and her daughter, Lilla Taylor. The household are also his sons, Lucian and George, age eight and 10. Madeline was divorced and she was Sarah Packwood's younger sister. Richard and Madeline married on April the 9th, 1881. Doesn't that sound familiar? As in marrying the housekeeper 
who's also your sister-in-law. It's the same scenario which ends so tragically 10 years later for Francis Packwood. In the 1900 census, Richard Packwood and his wife Maddie and his stepdaughter Lilla all lived together. Then in October of 1900, Madeline Packwood dies. And strangely enough, four years later in 1904, Richard dies. However, his place of burial is a very unusual place. It's not even in Florida. He was buried in the Tewksbury State Hospital Cemetery in Massachusetts. Now, the history of this place is that it was a former almshouse, tuberculosis, and polio infirmary that was opened in 1852. If this is accurate, one has to wonder how Richard Packwood ended up there. And as to Francis Packwood, the unfortunate man that lost his son, his wife, and his would-be wife slash sister-in-law in 1891, he ended up moving back to New York and lived into his 90s. He died in August of 1941 and was buried in the family cemetery vault at Trinity Church in New York City. In the end, the crime that occurred on the Packwood homestead in 1891 is officially considered unsolved. But unofficially, one has to ask, did three men get away with cold-blooded murder? <laughs>